Welcome to the home of Running Toward Evil. My name is Steve DeBoard. I'm the host of this true crime podcast. This podcast is made for those true crime aficionados who relish digging into the psyche of violent criminals, weird criminals, and deviant criminal actions. This podcast is not for the faint of heart. These stories will be presented as if I had gone to the crime scene myself as the investigator that I once was, and I'll be giving insights into each investigation to try to fill in the gaps so you can understand the intricacies of each investigation. The case we're dealing with today is about Jessica Richardson, who is a 12-year-old girl who killed her family because she thought she was in love. How many of us have done things because we thought we were in crazy love that we would never do otherwise? What would possess, though, a 12-year-old girl, even though she may have thought she was in love, to become so angry to kill her entire family? Let's explore some of these reasons One thing that is known is that adolescent males are generally more aggressive than females, so it could be assumed that males, far more than females, are involved in parasite. The definition of parasite is the killing of your parents. Patricide is the killing of a father. Matricide is the killing of the mother. It's also known that teens generally have a lack of psychosis. Psychosis? What in the world are we talking about, Steve DeBoard? What does it mean? Well, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, psychosis is a collection of symptoms that affect the mind where there has been some loss of contact with reality. Their thoughts become unable to see the line between perception and reality. There are changes in behavior, and there may even have become fused and unpredictable. I don't know about you, but this would certainly make me ask another question. How did they become this way? What could cause this big of a change when everything seemed to be okay just seemingly yesterday? I came across some clear-cut reasoning produced by a psychologist who stated that there are five things that we have to look at. Payback and revenge. I think they're self-explanatory. Prowess and malice. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that if they can make a plan and they follow through, and then they execute that plan, that would have given them a prowess and malice, an expertise, a skill, and that led to murder in this case. There's also the characteristic of personal dislike and disposal. You don't like something, so you get rid of it. Greed and personal gain, something for money, or some way to do something for money. And finally, delusional emulation. Now, this is a strange one because this is a point where we discuss that suspects, especially adolescent suspects, are sometimes influenced by imaginary friends. Now, these could also be characters from a TV show or a movie that they've seen, such as Dexter. You remember how popular that was? A few years ago, he played a serial killer on TV that only killed the bad people. Let me give you a couple of other examples of parasite that have happened over the years. Lizzie Borden killed her father and stepmother with an axe in 1892. Sarah Johnson, who was 16 when she committed her cruel act by killing her parents because they didn't like her older boyfriend. So she shot them both with a high-powered rifle. 
I'm assuming you can see during this story similarities with Jessica Richardson. And that will bring us to today's story of Canada's youngest triple killer, a mesmerizing case of a 12-year-old girl who believed she had fallen in love with a 23-year-old man with far more than simply a shady past. Aside from his age, he was exactly the kind of male you would not want your daughter to be hanging out with, going to the mall with, talking to on the phone, seeing him on a date as if she wasn't young enough at 12 years old, and yet she was sneaking out and seeing him at different places. What was the 12-year-old doing out, being able to go to these places? Parents consent at the time? We don't know that. Was it because she snuck out? And we don't know that either. What could have happened to that precious young daughter, the apple of their parents' eyes, and a babysitter for her younger brother to have killed all of them? After all, this was Medicine Hat in Alberta, Canada. Medicine Hat. Population of 20, uh, in 2016 was around 63,000 people and had actually been given the name of the gas city by Rudyard Kipling because when he had visited there, he had found that Medicine Hat had so many oil fields, but it also gave him an impetus to say having this many oil fields is like having hell for a basement. Regardless of what country it was in or how small or big the city was, violent crime struck on April 23, 2006, in the worst way possible. Three people were murdered in their modest, loving home in the worst possible way. On that day, the bodies of Mark Richardson, 42 years old, Deborah Richardson, 48 years old, were found in the basement of their home after having been drugged from another location. Tyler Jacob, eight years old, had had his throat cut and was shortly found thereafter discovered in his room on the second floor of their home. The weird thing was they also had a 12-year-old daughter, Je Jessica, who lived at home but was not there at the time the bodies were discovered. Where could she possibly be? Of course, everybody's thoughts at that moment were, could she have been kidnapped? Where she was taken if she was kidnapped? Where is she now? Why wasn't she here? Those answers will come very shortly. The murders were actually discovered by a friend of Jasmine's brother, Tyler, who had gone over to the house from the neighborhood to see if he could come out and play. He was able to look in the basement window and saw the bodies of the elder Richardsons and went home and told his mother, who called the police. They went to the house and found all of the bodies. As I said before, Jessica was initially seen as a victim of this tragic event, but it was later revealed that she played a big role in the crime, along with her former pet groomer and boyfriend, Jeremy Steike. Pet groomer? Wow. Evidence in digital messages showed that the two lovers had exchanged correspondence detailing their plans for the murders. Obviously, the parents didn't want them to be together. The couple was eventually found and arrested while they were running away together. Richardson, who was only 12 at the time of the conviction, now let me make a correction on that, she was 13 at the time of the conviction, received a maximum sentence allowed by the Youth Criminal Justice Act of Canada which states that if you're under a specific age, you could get no more than 10 years in prison. It'll be as a juvenile, not as an adult. She was actually found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder, despite, despite pleading not guilty. Now, when the Youth Criminal Justice Act says no more than 10 years, that means for an aggregated 
conviction. The act did not mean that it's 10 years for each murder maximum. It meant all of the murders together, all three of the murders together, she could still only get 10 years. The police began a search for the young girl, fearing she may have been abducted. The police, as usual, also began to find friends and family to interview to try and figure out what may have happened in this home. I can tell you the first uniform officers on the scene after finding the bodies would have cordoned the house off with limited entrance into what would become the crime scene. When homicide arrived, they called a crime scene unit to take photos, preserve, record, and collect any and all evidence, or even that which could have been evidence. The homicide investigators would also have closely looked at the crime scene and begun to try and make sense of the chaos that had been brought upon this house and family. How were the bodies positioned? What weapon would have been used or could have been used or had been used? Where exactly in the basement were they? Were they close to the bottom of the stairs? Had they been dragged around to the corner where it couldn't be seen if you walked down the stairs? These are questions that homicide detectives are going to ask and look for. Where did the initial crime scene occur? And any evidence of the number of assailants that was involved? Look, there's basic questions that all investigators want to answer. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? The problem with such questions is finding an answer to all of them. If they can all be answered, then you may very well be able to find the killer or killers. If not, then you keep investigating. However, bear in mind that not having a motive, which in my mind seems to be a very important point, but not mandatory, you can still make an arrest, charge somebody with the crime, and have them convicted in a court of law, even without, as I said, a motive. Additionally, it was the utmost importance as to who found the bodies. And we know that the young man in the neighborhood, the friend of the young boy that had been murdered, was that person. Those questions would be answered the next day, as well as many more that had not yet been asked. The next day, through investigative efforts by the police, interviews with family and friends stepping forward, two arrests were made about 100 miles away from the crime scene. One of the important pieces of evidence that was quickly found by detectives was going to Jessica's school and searching her locker and her desks, speaking to her friends for anything that would help them find out why the murders happened or prior to that, where she may be. I'm sure the hairs on the back of the neck of each investigator stood on end. There in her notes, found in her locker, were drawings, detailed drawings and words describing how she wanted to kill her family by burning them alive. This gave further credence to the interviews with friends and classmates that Jessica had stated more than once she wanted to kill her mother and father. How could it be that she was so angry? And why did she want to kill her parents? I can tell you very simply because of selfishness, narcissism, being told what she could do and could not do by her parents. But most of all, it was conceived from a twisted mind of an adolescent who fell in love. More about that in a couple of minutes. Were there other motivations involved in these murders? Well, in a big one was Jeremy Steinke, who was the pet groomer and person who believed he thought he was a 300-year-old vampire. Jasmine met him at the mall a year earlier in town. Such a love story. A story of two star-crossed lovers 
No one can understand them except each other. So, of course, they fall in love and want to be with each other. What could be more normal? Well, here's the problem. At that time, she was 11 years old, and Steinke was 23. In 2006, Jeremy Steinke was a 22-year-old man who hung out around the Alberta, Canada punk scene, where he allegedly told people that he was a werewolf and had been for the past 300 years. According to acquaintances of his at the time of the murders, he was known to wear a vial of blood around his neck just to prove to others and maybe himself that he did, in fact, love drinking blood and insisted that he was immortal. He even bragged about his like and lifestyle on MySpace, the social media network, back at that time. And that's exactly where he and Jessica Richardson continued to develop their relationship. After meeting at a punk show, Richardson and Steinke continued their relationship, social media sites, and attended local goth and punk rock shows as often as they could get together. Her friends claimed that while the girl had once been clean cut, she was quickly changing to be more goth now that she was under Steinke's control. And her online social media photos at the time proved this statement. Richardson's parents forbade their daughter from dating Steinke. When Richardson's family found out their preteen daughter was dating a 23-year-old man, they immediately forbid her from seeing Steinke anymore and from going out with her friends. But the one thing she was still allowed to do was to be able to get online to her social media networks and check each and every one of them for her boyfriend. And that's where she and Steinke continued to develop the relationship and where they developed this horrific plan of murder. I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. And that was a statement made by ja Jessica to Steinke. He followed up with a continuing statement. Their throats I want to slit. They will regret what they have done, especially when I see to it that they're all gone. They shall pay a price for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. This would be convincing circumstantial evidence. It's possible you may be wondering why it's not direct, because there's two types of evidence, direct and circumstantial. Circumstantial is things that other people say, something that is not a physical piece of evidence. Direct evidence is a direct statement or physical item. Well, according to the law in just about every state, a criminal proceeding, a defendant's confession of guilt, that would be the defendant's or the suspect's confession of guilt, would in fact constitutional constitute direct evidence. A defendant's admission not amounting to a confession because it does not directly acknowledge guilt, but does include inculpatory statements from which a jury may infer guilt, is circumstantial evidence. That's the difference between the two. I had to look this up myself. Inculpatory is defined as inculpatory evidence is evidence that shows or tends to show a person's involvement in an act or evidence that can be used to establish guilt. Steinke was not alone in his fantasies of killing Jessica's parents. Jessica was not found at the scene, leading authorities to believe she had been kidnapped, but evidence quickly pointed to her involvement. They had found out that her parents forbade her from contacting Steinke, but they found an email which she told him she had a plan, and in that email it stated, it begins with me killing them, 
and ends up with me living with you. Jeremy was sentenced to life in prison without parole for 25 years. Despite being incarcerated, the two continued their relationship through letters and even promised to marry each other. We've already talked about this, but let me reiterate that in Canada, the law says that, she, that a juvenile under a certain age can be found guilty of first-degree murder, which can get no more than 10 years. What happened to her after 10 years? Because this happened in 2006. She was convicted in 2007. After receiving extensive rehabilitation and treatment, she was released from prison in 2011. A series of psychiatric evaluations revealed that she had been diagnosed with conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. While she served the remainder of her sentence under conditional supervision in the community, Jessica enrolled as a freshman at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. Her official sentence was completed in 2016, marking her full release from the justice system. During her final court appearance, it was noted that Jasmine only expressed gratitude towards the judge, but did not show any remorse for any of her crimes. Officer Brett, one of the first responders at the crime scene, expressed concerns and hoped that she hadn't deceived the criminal justice system. However, her attorney believed she had undergone effective rehabilitation and was unlikely to reoffend. As for Jason Steinke, he remains in prison for the full 45 years. listening to Running Toward Evil with me, Steve DeBoard. I also want to thank Eddie the Dog for being my co-host for this podcast and trying to give me hints and suggestions while I was on the air, which I'm sure you probably heard. Next time, she'll stick to the script, I promise. I would love hearing from you if you email me at draobed, D-R-A-O-B-E-D at hotmail.com or any of the social media podcast platforms you use. I want to thank Buzzsprout for hosting this podcast and the support they give. For now, the podcast Running Port Evil will be published every other Monday as we concentrate on giving you the best entertaining shows we can create. For now, happy Thanksgiving and peace out.